This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. As we approach the 10th anniversary of the podcast, I'm running the Summer to Fall fundraiser. These annual events allow me to work on long-term projects to improve the show. This year, I'd like to upgrade the computer where I edit the show and purchase equipment to produce video interviews and site tours once the world recovers from COVID. To go along with the fundraiser, for anyone donating $50 or more during this campaign, I'll send you a USB drive with every currently available interview, monologue, and discussion from the first decade of the Permaculture Podcast. That includes the first show from 2010, all the way up to the 10th anniversary episode out on October 10th of this year. Just include your name and address in the note with your donation. If you work in audio or video production and have used gear you'd be willing to donate to this latest endeavor, I'm open to that as well. You can donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail to my new address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. In addition to the podcast, I'm also here to help you find the resources necessary to bring your vision of permaculture into the world. You can now schedule a one-on-one consultation or a more casual meandering conversation, if you prefer, at calendly.com permaculture. There are also more voices in the world doing amazing work than I could ever have the possibility to record an interview with. So if you've ever thought, I'd like to hear an interview with a member of my community on the Permaculture Podcast, now's the opportunity. I'd like to teach you how to record a conversation and send it to me to share with the world. You don't need to edit or produce the interview. I'll take care of all that. I'm also particularly interested in stories recorded by women and young people and from Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. If you're interested, let me know. Send an email to show at permaculturepodcast.com with the subject, My Community, and pitch me the story you'd like to share. My guest today is Alan Clements, a permaculture practitioner who, when we recorded this interview in January 2020, was completing his certification in biodynamic agriculture at the Pfeiffer Center in Spring Valley, New York. I've been intrigued by biodynamic agriculture as a farming practice since first hearing about the growth of biodynamic wineries in Sonoma Valley, California. How did Rudolf Steiner's philosophy impact the way we manage the land? How does biodynamic agriculture differ from permaculture or organic ag? And What was the deal with the preparations, like stuffing a cow horn full of manure and burying it in a field? Thankfully, I knew of Alan through our local permaculture community and saw that he'd posted some info about biodynamic agriculture to his Instagram feed. Reading some of his blog entries, he was just getting started with all of this, so seemed like the perfect person for me to sit down with, in person, to explore these ideas. Together, we could capture his perspective as a relatively new practitioner and my bewilderment as someone with only a passing familiarity with the name, let alone the practices. Enjoy this conversation with Alan, and I'll join you again after. Then Alan, welcome to my home. This is the first time I've ever actually recorded an interview at my house, so this is unique experience so far. But you and I have been acquainted with each other for some time between our work within the local permaculture community here in Lancaster and central Pennsylvania. Both have been to the Horn Farm Center and are familiar with the work there. We have many friends in common through this. 
though recently have just met for the first time and you came up to record an interview with me. And then we've also, though, had conversations about your work on the farm, your family's farm, and then your interest in biodynamics. And it's that interest in biodynamics and your personal work are why I wanted to have you here today, because biodynamics is something that continually comes up in conversation. It seems to be a direction that many people within permaculture are embracing as an addition to the ethics of design as a way to actually engage in land management and land practices. But it's not something that I'm really familiar with. And so I was hoping as a relatively new practitioner to this form of land management that you might give us a bit of an introduction, how you came to it, as well as your ongoing work in the world of regenerative ag. Absolutely. So um, I basically, I came to permaculture through some mutual friends of ours, John Darby, Ben Weiss, Wilson Alvarez, you know, people that I met in our community, talked to, friends of friends. And then I kind of started working in the forest my wife's family's land Mm -hmm. and getting interested in agroforestry. And John Darby mentioned a forest garden design class with Dave Jackie. And so I took this intensive with Dave Jackie and that was really my uh, more deep dive into permaculture to start to understand some of those, those concepts, you know, it wasn't a PDC. Uh, Since then, I'm actually now on the board at the Horn Farm Center, which is doing some amazing things, some of which you've documented, which is awesome. And biodynamics came from that, my interest in biodynamics, my curiosity about it, but also from sort of a happenstance. And this is this is kind of a really interesting thing when you think of the spiritual nature of biodynamics is that I happened to move in to a home. My wife and I purchased a home across the street from a Waldorf school. And at the time, we knew nothing of Waldorf education. About six years later, which is now, one of my children has graduated from that Waldorf school. Two of my other children are going there. And my wife is a kindergarten teacher there and almost has her Waldorf certification. So that was our introduction to anthroposophy. And anthroposophy is called a spiritual science that was started by Rudolf Steiner, who also developed biodynamics. And so he also developed all kinds of other things that we were briefly discussing before we started recording. He has a book called The Philosophy of Freedom, which talks about government and social structures. And he was very much passionate about the perfection of the human being and how could we, how, how could we achieve that? How could we evolve, really, spiritually speaking? But it's called spiritual science because there's also science in it. So when we start getting into biodynamics, what I like to tell people right off the bat, because we all feel very differently about these different angles or these different lenses Mm -hmm. with which we can view agriculture or gardening, is that you can get, there is something of the scientific, there is something of the spiritual, and there's probably something of the just obvious in it as well, or that has a lot of connections to some of these other philosophies that we're interested in. I think you can benefit from either. I think that as you get into it, you'll see the holistic view of a little bit of spiritual and a little bit of science. But I also believe that some of what you do and some some of your listeners may have heard of biodynamic preparations and digging holes and putting things in them and putting substances into um, compost piles and different things like that. I think there is an underlying lesson in that of intention and taking the time to do something. And whether or not you believe that you're spiritually imbuing these things with anything, if you take the time to think about what you want to do, 
you take the time to respectfully, if not reverently, do it. And not like slipping it in because, hey, I think I have like a couple extra minutes here, but saying like, you know, when this day comes, when the moon is at a certain, a certain phase, I should do this and I should follow through with my intention. I think there's something to that. And so that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a top level what I think anyone could get from biodynamics. Well, and that's where it's interesting for me. Many years ago, I did an interview with a Canadian veterinarian on like holistic animal care. And part of that conversation was whether or not you believe in some of the folk medicines that are available or traditions that come within agriculture that she encourages those people who engage in those practices to continue to do that. Because very often that means that they're going to be visiting their sick cow five times a day to deliver this herbal remedy rather than going out once a day or every three days just to inject them with modern medicine, which then keeps them more actively engaged in what it is that they're doing. And I think with what you said about, you know, your preparations and taking the time to dig a hole and to place things in your compost pile, doing things by the phase of the moon, well then, those are all the things that you have to be aware of just in order to take that one practice. It's not like setting an alarm for, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to go out and walk around with my animals, but that you have to know what the phase of the moon is in order to go out there and do that, you know, to be paying attention to the lunar calendar, if it is impacted by the season and all these other pieces. Sure. But also, like you said, paying attention to the animal itself. And I think that we're in a culture that's obsessed with convenience. And you see that with um, smartphones and you see that with plastic water bottles. And, you know, you can point your finger at just about anything um, that we enjoy these days. And I think our perception is, well, there's no time to do that. But as I get more into biodynamics and practicing that, I start to understand, oh, my children can do this with me. Or even a trip to the store, whereas in the past, my wife have, and I have like, oh, how can we do this where the kids don't have to come with us? <laughs> That's time that we could be spending together and growing together. And I think that was a real important point of, of trying to make that happen. I would like to kind of go back, though, to the situation the world was in when biodynamics was presented to the world. A historical perspective. Yeah. So the course that I took at the, or that I'm, I'm really still taking, I'm almost done with my certification at the Pfeiffer Center, which is a, um, a school of biodynamics and a biodynamic farm in Chestnut Ridge, New York, teaches a year-long course that's based on the agriculture lectures by Rudolf Steiner. And this happened in 1924 uh, in Poland. And I'm not the best historian on this. I'm just kind of getting, just kind of putting my toe in. But um, the situation at the time in Poland, Germany, Europe, particularly, was that seeds were not viable. That cropland was not able to be farmed on year after year. The soil was really was failing. The seeds were failing. Plants as a, as a species were getting weaker, particularly the ones that people wanted to eat. And there was a lot of concern over that. I mean, the kind of concern we'd have these days over an oil shortage or the idea that our internet would go down, right? That level of, of, uh, of insanity <laughs> was happening. And so the farmers around this area knew that there was this scientist, this um, researcher, and this clairvoyant named Rudolf Steiner. 
that probably had some idea as to what could be done, or at least some angle that they could look at it from. Now, what's really interesting about this time period is it was also the time period in which the same problems were presented to a man by the name of Sir Albert Howard, a woman by the name of Eve Balfour, and a New York man by the name of J.I. Rodale. This is all the same time period. I mean, if these guys and, and if, if these people weren't in touch, you know, they probably were in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Right. They were hearing the same thing, right? Um, and they were all innovating. And, and those, those four people are pretty much, I mean, are, are credited at least uh, among a group of people for, for founding organic and sustainable agriculture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to say that, like, biodynamic farming is, is, a, is a, another full, like, Waldorf education where we kind of fell in to the idea of anthroposophy. Then there's biodynamic farming. As we talked about before, there was Camp Hill communities that, you know, how can we care for our aging um, for those who need our help? And there was, uh, there was also philosophy of, of government and society. So all of these things, I mean, these are all part of the same thing. So this was the agriculture arm. How can we produce? How can we make our seed viable? And basically all of these four people that I mentioned said, well, there's an issue, issue with our systems. There's an issue with the soil. Things need to be that, that needs to become healthy before we can grow food like we intend to. So um, in the agriculture lectures, um, which took place over about a week, all of these farmers, I want to say something like 20 something like farmers from the region came together and they said, what do we do? And one of the first things that he told them to do was to, to make a, a preparation by putting cow manure into a horn, bury it in the ground during a certain time of year, and that that would be then dug up, removed, added to a homeopathic solution, and then spread over the fields to promote root growth. It's so deep that I can't, you know, I can't cover all of the why of this, but if you think about that process, you know, for just a moment and say, somebody has collected these things, which are farm available. They've, during a certain part of the year, they've buried it in the ground. They've dug a hole. They disturbed a small part of ground of the ground. They've touched the earth. They've touched cow manure. Um, they've interacted with their animals. They've interacted with the land. They've chosen a spot for it. You know, where's the right spot for this hole? And then they've waited and they've passed that day after day. And they see that thing that's stewing, waiting. And then there's more, <laughs> you know, then you have, then you dig it up. But also when you do these things, you don't do them alone. You know, there's a community component to it. Um, so there's that healing too. And so that's, that's where, what I read between the lines in these things. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's so, so many people who are going to say, that's hogwash, that's new age, that's weird, that's woo-woo, whatever you want to call it. But there's more to it than that. There's more to anything than that. There's always some deeper line. And for me, that's, that's the invitation to everyone to biodynamics is how can we be intentional about things, take the time with things, observe and experience things, and spend time together? I will admit that I'm one of those people who goes, man, this is kind of woo for me. 
But again, I go back to that idea of intent. And if you're taking this manure and you're mixing it with water and you're applying it to the fields, I mean, you're kind of creating a compost tea or a liquid fertilizer solution. You're also then spending that time to spread it across your fields. If there are ways in which you're supposed to be doing that, you're spending time with it, you're smelling the earth, you're again, interacting with what's around you. And that's where, for me, from kind of the outside, I keep coming back to this. And why I'm interested in biodynamics is because of the way that it brings us back to the earth. And I think that it's so many of our traditions have taken us so far away from their roots. We were talking as we were beginning um, about like how different spiritual traditions have this land care or earth care component in them that we've been removed from. If we read about Genesis and the idea that we were stewards of the earth, you know, for Adam and Eve, and then we have the the one son who raised animals, who was the shepherd, one son who was then raising plants and was the gardener, and all of these different pieces that come together. Or if we, um, I'm thinking of my interviews with Ramis Kent about Islam and earth care, that at the end of days, all of the earth will judge us. And that when we have those things together, that there are these components of all of these pieces of faith that many people around the world have practiced for thousands of years that I think we've just lost connection to in the modern world. And so someone like Steiner or the conversations about organic agriculture come in and go, these are all old stories, but here's a different way that you can take them and apply them to your life right now in the world that's going on. And I think we see something similar as you say, that historical moment for like Rodale and Howard and Steiner and did you say Balfour? Mm -hmm. Those individuals, well, we see the same thing then with like Sepp Holzer and David Holmgren and Mollison or even like the natural farming of Fukuoka, which ultimately inspired a lot of what we're doing now within permaculture. That took place over a generation. Right. Yeah. And all these things come together. So I can perfectly see from the outside as a storyteller and someone who follows these these myths of humanity, the way that these things matter, like missing those traditions. Well, here's something that we can bring people together in a community around around something that matters, our food, our food sovereignty, agriculture, the ability to take care of ourselves and those people around us, and now have a way to put that into practice in a way that brings us back to the land. And when we talk about the origin of of biodynamics and organic agriculture, we're talking about 1924, pre-internet, pre-communication in any way, shape, or form that we know it. You know, it's really something that these people were spoken to at the same time, sometimes by very physical things, but really like from where does it come? You know, I think through you maybe even uh, uh, was introduced to Charles Eisenstein, which like is, I think, very top level. He's talking about us being spoken to as a community of life. And it's wonderful to think where that comes from. Um, But it's difficult to think how many of us ignore it and how slowly it happens sometimes. Yeah. But at the same time, this has happened several times throughout history, like at different times. There's like this frequency, this ping Mm -hmm. of awakening and of thought around this. So at some point we should all pick up on it. (laughs) Well, and that's, you know, the purpose of these kinds of moments is because we're here, we're here sharing these stories from these two different perspectives someone who's relatively clueless, myself, you who are working through your certification, but we can have this conversation as people who are, kind of, are who are still learning about this process and be able to share that with other people so that they, if they're interested, they can connect to it. And more people can become aware of the breadth of knowledge and practices that are available within biodynamics. 
there are two more facets of biodynamics aside from, you know, the preparations, which I think is the most outward and well-known component of it. People get really excited when they see cow horns, you know, and, uh, and, and other, uh, other preps, you know, pits and, and things like that. You know, one is, is that of planetary influence and, you know, uh, it's old adage by people who study astrology that, you know, if the moon is this smallish celestial body and has such a great effect on our oceans here, why wouldn't something that was 10,000 times the size of the moon? Um, so there are planetary forces at work in these preparations and in the earth. And then the third fold of it is another kind of force, which is referred to as the elementals. We talk about anthroposophy, biodynamics, Waldorf education, etc. I think it's this gets really exciting for me, is that uh, you have these four forces, and you see them over and over again in different places. So in farming, well, really in all of it, we say it's the... Uh, the salamander, which is a warmth or fire force. We have the gnome, which is a mineral sort of rock dense force. We have the sylph, which is an airy sort of fairy spirit. And then you have the, um, the undine, which is the water. Those can also be, have you ever heard of the four temperaments before? So the four temperaments are a tool by which we, uh, in anthroposophy, look at sort of the differences between people and, you know, what sort of, what drum they, they march to. And so you have the choleric, the phlegmatic. Oh, have you heard of these? Yes. I think it was Galen who wrote about those historically. That's right. Yes. That's right. And so um, Steiner loved them as well. And he said, well, look, that's the choleric is the salamander. The sanguine is the sylph, right? The phlegmatic is the gnome. And uh, the undine is the um, melancholic. There you go. So watery and stuff. And there's so much. I mean, my wife went to an entire seminar on gnomes at the same community where I learn about biodynamics. She learns about Waldorf education. And so there was a, a guest speaker there. I wish I remembered his name, but he is the expert on gnomes okay. and, and, gave, and gave a talk about them. And she came back with so much amazing information. And once again, whether or not you believe that there's a little red pointed hat, like yes. being running around in your garden, which is not necessarily the case in this philosophy, there's still something to it, right? There's something to that mineral, dense rock, that force. And you can relate that to that phlegmatic. I like comfort mm -hmm. and I like to eat my warm soup and I like to wrap myself in the fleece, you know? And so all, like all of a sudden you get to compare the things that are happening in your garden to the relationships that you have with right. people. And that is magical in itself. What I think as human beings, we're storytelling myth-making machines and we have all of these, as I was saying earlier, these traditions and these stories, and it's what can we use to relate to each other and our practices. And that's where, again, regardless of how you may feel, because I'm certainly, a lot of times I feel kind of on the outside of things because I tend to be the more sciencey kind of guy. And I don't talk about a lot of the spiritual stuff on the show, but I understand that there, there's a lot of meaning and value in that. 
when I look at like my partner's religious traditions as someone who practices orthodoxy and the way that she interacts with food as a result of that in our both day-to-day living because she fasts two days a week and then the preparation of for Lent versus like I grew up in a historic peace church. I grew up brethren. And so that's completely different from like her worldview because of the personal relationship that I was given um, that I would have with God through that perspective. But then I think about the way that like my children and I relate to like the um, Greek mythology when we talk about things because those are stories my children absolutely love. And so they're very familiar with those. Well, what are the different ways then that we can connect with that? And it's like the work of Galen, the, the idea of the elements. These are things that are I feel are so fundamental to what it means to be human that they carry through in all of these different places. And there's a lot of value in, in having that common language and thinking about things in that way. I just completely agree. And I just really am really feeling what you're saying and that like, um, you know, it hurts when I think we disconnect ourselves through our beliefs rather than seek that commonality in those connections because we're destined to look for that commonality and connections. Yeah. doesn't mean that we have to be the same. It just means that when we interact with someone, it's like, how can we relate? Well, yeah. And it's like anybody who'd be listening to this who's like, ah, biodynamic, or, you know, might have negative feelings about it or have really positive feelings about it. It's that like, what are the pieces of it that we can find that really connect us to this? Because I find that in most cases, even like politically or otherwise, when I'm disconnected from someone, we're still like 99% on the same page, especially like within the permaculture community, because we range from like the very hardcore, I want to have my family farm because I want to make sure that my family continues to exist. I have my firearms because I hunt and they represent defense to like the stereotypical city dweller who's going to be buying their food from their organic market, you know, wearing their Birkenstocks, being stereotypically kind of crunchy and everything in between that it's ultimately about how do we have food security? How do we take care of the people who are around us and we care about? Like, what are all those pieces that we can find? And I think that if we start looking for those things, we can throw away most of the stuff that we don't connect on and can find ways to support one another, regardless of where we might not be familiar with one another. Yeah. And I think that us, we in this community that's interested in different types of agriculture and how can we you know, perfect agriculture, but really perfect humanity, right? right? As Fukuoka says, you know, I think that we like to dip our toe in all of these different things and like say, oh, let's get a little bit of this silvo pasture and agroforestry and holistic management and permaculture. And, oh, let's see what biodynamics has to offer. And really like we're distill, we're distilleries, right? We're right. like, we're taking these things in and we're making something new. And then from an evolutionary perspective, Eisenstein, you know, like then that distills itself together into whatever that new fabric is. So it's really a beautiful thing. So another thing you'll hear about in biodynamics is um, uh, there's a calendar and that calendar associates with the positioning of the stars, planets, their relation to one another, and of course the moon. And I'm still, we had an entire session on the calendar. So uh, the woman that came to our class and taught us, taught us a session on the calendar was the woman who does the, um, who actually prepares the biodynamic calendar each year here in the United States. Okay. And her name is uh, Sherry 
Wildfear. So Sherry um, prepares the calendar in the U.S. I think there may be another one. It's called Stella Natura. Um, and she has basically gone through and mapped out what phases the sun and the moon will be in, like in what part of the sky behind what constellations um, at different times, and then also taking the moon phases into account. And basically, without going into too much astrological detail or astronomical detail, basically you'll have different days. And the days are fruit, seed, leaf and stem, and root days. The general philosophy around this is that those celestial forces are in the right position for you to either um, plant, cultivate, or harvest the, those types of things. Okay. So on a root day, you'd want to plant your potatoes or carrots. Those seeds would be imbued with the forces that enhance root. I don't have the book with me, uh, but there is a book by Maria Thun who, or it might be pronounced Tune, Maria Thun. It's a biodynamic gardening book. I think it's called Gardening the Biodynamic Way. And she has several tests that she's done with onions. You can see the onions which were harvested on a root day, months after harvesting, and those that were harvested on other days, flower and fruit days, are moldy, shrunken. And, you know, and this was a test unlike any other scientific test. She had the same, she planted them on the same day. They were the same type of, of onion. They were in the same general soil composition, yet harvesting on days, which were days apart, not months apart or anything crazy like that, that had particular qualities to that day, made a huge difference. And those onions that were harvested on the root day looked, you know, as, as marketing speak or whatever, but as good as the day you picked them, you know? And is there something to that? Could someone, you know, but, but. The thing is that my teacher, Mac Mead, one of my teachers at the Pfeiffer Center, he puts out the invitation to do these things yourself. Test it. Try it. Look at it. He also suggests that in some cases, you can't really test. There's a quality about things. There's, some, there's a thing that you know. Um, we spray silica on the field. And I took, it's crushed quartz that we've sprayed. We've crushed it into a fine powder and we buried it in horns over a different time of year. We stored it differently, but it was a homeopathic solution that we then sprayed over some leaf vegetables. And everyone in that class witnessed something about the plants that we sprayed that on. But what was that? Was it that the leaves are more nutritious now? Was it that we had experienced that together? Was it we had spent time with the vegetables? And I'm right now I'm I'm making a shrugging, you know, motion <laughs> towards Scott, which I think I got from my teacher, Mac Mead. When someone would ask him a question, sometimes he would go, he would shrug and nod and then shrug again and then yes and nod. Because that's that's what relationship is, is test those things out. Try it. See what it does. Have an experience, a real experience with it. And, you know, there are problems that we face in terms of feeding the world. And we solve them with tractors and 
farm implements and probably GPS guided tractors or drones that are spraying things on fields or whatever. Mm-hmm. But all of that, there's a lot of waste in that. There's a lot of death in that. And it does, and it takes us, it, it densifies us. It takes us away from having an experience with those things. Mm-hmm. It's not to say I'm not. I'm not uh, attacking or accusing farmers, generational farmers, people who deserve so much respect and gratitude for what they do. But in anything, shouldn't we ask ourselves, like, are we getting, are we, are we getting the most out of humanity in what we're doing? When we talk about connection there, and particularly when I think about food, Philip Ackerman Leist is one of my like favorite interviews. He wrote a precautionary tale. But I got to know him years ago through an NPR interview of all things, and he had this line about anonymous prepackaged meat and how we can just go to a grocery store and buy something and get whatever we want. And so one of the big lessons for me was sitting down with a cookbook one day and a whole chicken in front of me, my chef's knife, pair of kitchen shears, and learning how to take apart a chicken for my family. And through that process, having a lot more respect for what I was about to cook, knowing it's like, what parts am I going to use for this meal? Having to select recipes that would use the dark meat versus the white meat. You know, was I going to fillet something off the bone? Was I going to cook it with the bone? And this, this idea that I keep returning to is a life made by hand. And that the more we do things by hand, the more it reconnects us with the food we drink. Because my children and I make home fermented sodas now. And like my son's learning about flavor profiles and how does he like his cola flavored? Does he want it a little bit sweeter, a little bit drier? Do we ferment it for a couple of days longer so it's even more bubbly? Or uh, making ginger ale, he finds that he doesn't like unfiltered ginger ale. So that when we make ginger ale now, we'll flavor the syrup with the ginger, but then filter it out before we bottle it so he doesn't have that like hit of fibrous material. And I just think about those kinds of processes and the way that they really reconnect us with what it is that we do. And I see that as a role for biodynamics in what it is that we're doing because of these preparations, because of the intent. And then also, like we've been talking about throughout this conversation, is the way that this ties into traditions um, and stories, that we have multiple generations who have been practicing this. So if you go and you talk with someone like Maria Thune, and all of what she's learned, or like your teacher, was it Mac Mead you said? Mm-hmm. Someone like that who has this tradition through the Pfeiffer Center of these experiences and what has been distilled to him that only through his process can he share with you in return. And then also like just that invitation to try something and to try something different. Hasn't life become so formulaic, you know? And then, but yet we, we hear things like failure is the best teacher, yet we try so hard to prevent failure of any sort, a one percentile chance of getting a disease or falling off your bike or whatever. We try to shield and protect particularly our children from those things that are the best teachers. And so one of the interesting things about the biodynamic philosophy is that you have this this leader in Rudolf Steiner that developed this, of course, subsequently passed away. Yet it's not a real organization or you have to innovate on that. You have to take it to the next level. So I don't even believe, I don't know that Steiner had a direct influence on the biodynamic calendar. People just took the things that he was talking about, 
tried it, said this seems to work. These onions last for months throughout the winter because we harvest them on a root day. Oh, but that didn't quite work. Maybe I'm not calculating that right. And that's been worked out over time from people who it's been passed on to. There's a thing called um, a flow form in which um, it basically kind of like matches the way that we were taught to stir the homeopathic preparation with a whirlpool in the middle. Well, someone in Australia, of course, of all places, right, decided that they were going to create from ceramics or stone a form that enriches that water and creates those whirlpools. And it goes down, down, down. And each one is a whirlpool. And it's kind of a self-stirring thing. Some cases that goes right back into the water source that it came from. And I've seen those flow forms used for gray water recycling because it aerates that waste. And there's the science. Right. Right. A little science, a little spirit. Yeah. For someone who's interested in biodynamics, we, we said before we started, you had said that you had been consuming like all kinds of videos on YouTube about permaculture and regenerative agriculture and everything else. Are there any biodynamic YouTube channels that you would recommend or videos you would suggest people watch if they were interested in this as kind of like a basic introduction before diving into some of the books or lectures? I'm sure there are, but they're not easy to find. And that's something like I kind of hope to rectify a little bit. There's an interesting, there's a reverence for the spiritual side of it that I see. And also in Waldorf education, I see this that's very protective of the secrets, but that people would approach it with a real like interest and a real passion and a, and a reverence as well. So I see that's something I want to explore and understand before I just burst it open and put a whole bunch of biodynamic videos online. But I would like to see more of that. I think I think your question also asks, like, how how can people connect with it? I think reading about it is a great way to sort of softly introduce yourself to it. Because in these philosophies, I think there are a lot of things that you have to sort of put on a shelf for a while before it opens itself up to you. Right. Um, that being said, it's for anyone who's genuinely interested in it. It's not exclusive. This isn't a club, you know, that you have to join. Right. Um, anyone can can do this or practice this. But I think I think reading a little bit about it. The lectures are hard. You said you want to read the lectures, I know, and you should. They're German translated. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which makes it a little difficult. But again, I think if you read it and you put it in there and you let it cook in that subliminal mind for a little while, things start to reveal themselves, especially when you do go out and start interacting with the land in that more intentional way. And you say that it's like, it's not really a club or anything like that. The reading, though, some of it may be difficult because of the translations, everything's there. It's not like you have to go take a biodynamic class to find out like this little secret or something like that. It's all available. It's just that it takes some work to get it because it's largely through the classes, the workshops, and the literature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, you know, obviously people have different learning styles. Right. And for me, the two ways that I learn are through hands-on mm-hmm. and through teaching, which is interesting. So that's kind of why I have uh, my YouTube channel and blog and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm here telling you a little bit about it. And I try to have those conversations. But the class was great for me because I was able to put my hands in that uh, dirt on those horns. I was able to crush up that silica. I was able to hear the sound that crushed quartz makes on gla- between two pieces of glass for many, many minutes. And there's some, but there's something to that too. And so that was a really good way for me to learn it. There are some videos online. I've, I, I watched videos of the flow form 
mm-hmm. probably like way more than I needed to just because it's so cathartic just to watch that. But uh, yeah, just, you know, talk to people about it. Uh, there's a number of schools. There's a lot of literature. What's interesting about anthroposophy is that you could go and get there. I mean, Rudolf Steiner was so prolific. There are tons of, of transcribed lectures that he did. I mean, I, don't, I can't even tell you how many hours and hours and hours of lectures that he did on many different topics, but they all tie together. So that's where I'm at now. I've read the agriculture lectures. I've read some books by some of his prodigies like Aaron Fried Pfeiffer, for whom the Pfeiffer Center is named. Mm-hmm. Or proteges, I guess is the word. <laughs> but uh, you know, you read those. If you read through those other lectures or some of his other written work, you know, you start to see those commonalities, like the sylph and the sanguine, and you start to say, "Okay, well, I understand that sort of air feeling and how that feels in a head." And then he's opening up, you know, what this elemental is like, and that it wants to be a bird, you know, or that it's afraid it will become a bird, you know, and so. And I don't know, it just, it makes you understand something about relationships, something different. And it makes you look up to the sky in a bit of a different way. And like, maybe, maybe I'll see a sylph or maybe that sylph looks like a leaf floating through the air or a calm trail that has some, a break in it that you can't explain what flew through that. (laughs) But why shouldn't we have some magic in our life? Sometimes I think magic is missing once we become adults. My, as my children are, are in that process of transitioning to teenagers, and I still get that glimpse of magic in their eyes as they see something new or explore the world in a way that sometimes I've forgotten. And I think that's important, too. And the children, uh, and in, in Waldorf philosophy, the children are very spiritual when they come into this world, and there is a hardening and densification and mineralization of the person, just as the earth is going through that. And that's why children see fairies and they see gnomes and they tell us and we go, Oh, that's so cute. But how sad is it that we can't anymore? And shouldn't we just enjoy that with them? We probably should just enjoy it with them. I will be sure to share some of the resources that you've presented today. And some of the things that you brought with us with the audience, if they'd like to learn more about biodynamics, a link to the Pfeiffer center, some of the books, but for people who want to find you and your work, where can they go to find your blog, your YouTube channel, and all of those things? I have a WordPress blog at forestrancher.wordpress.com. Um, and I have a YouTube channel at YouTube slash Forest Ranch Regenerative, as well as an Instagram page. And on those, if you dig deep enough, particularly the Instagram page, you'll see where I've buried horns and like where I've met and talked to the cows before collecting you know, the uh, ingredients uh, for some of these preparations. Um, And there should be a lot of pictures uh, from the year-long course that I took as well, which would be kind of throughout 2019. So we can maybe share some of that. It's kind of fun, the journey. And I do have a work in progress about what is biodynamics, just sort of an introductory blog post and video. But, you know, the reason it hasn't come out yet is, again, because I'm kind of exploring that. How do you unfold this for people with reverence? with care, and with respect. And that was Alan Clemens. As he mentioned, his blog is at forestrancher.wordpress.com. He's on Instagram at Forest Ranch Regenerative. And his YouTube channel is Forest Ranch Regenerative. You'll of course find links to all of that in the show notes, as well as an interview he recorded with me about the Permaculture Podcast. As you can hear in this interview, I'm skeptical of some aspects of biodynamic agriculture 
but also convinced that there is something to these practices that leads to improved landscapes and healthy plants. Is it in planting and harvesting according to the calendar, mindful of the root, fruit, leaf, and flower days? Do the preparations offer the nutritional density missing in conventional and even organic agriculture? Or do the changes come from the attention and connection to the land found by engaging with these practices? I don't know yet, but would like to learn more about the origins, efficacy, and deeper practices. Not just the preparations, but also how the calendar is calculated. Why farmers chose to convert to biodynamic agriculture. Is it to restore degraded land as a branding opportunity? To increase returns? And also to hear how biodynamic agriculture has grown from the ideas set out by the founder, Rudolf Steiner, a century ago. If you'd like me to air this exploration on the show and join me through this period of discovery, let me know and I'll create more episodes on biodynamic agriculture. Also, do you currently practice biodynamic agriculture? What are your thoughts? What would you like to learn more about? Or, do you see this as a system incompatible with permaculture? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes, send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post. Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. From here, the next interview is a conversation with Nigel Palmer to discuss his work creating hyper-local soil amendments from mineral and biological ferments and extracts. Until the next time, spend each day considering your preparations while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.